Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today John Schwepp, who is the Director of Policy and Government Affairs at the American Principles Project. Welcome, John. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks so much, Mark, for having me. First question, what is the American Principles Project? Uh, What do you do? Why do you guys exist? Well, we are a social conservative group. We were founded back in 2009, um, kind of as a response to, you know, the Obama administration's agenda and, um, you know, kind of focusing on what should conservatism look like as we head forward and really emphasizing the importance of social conservatism uh, on that, you know, three-legged stool that we've been talking about for the last several decades. And so we, you know, we're involved in the marriage fights, uh, we've been involved in religious liberty, but then also, you know, especially over the last few years, we've really started to focus on issues that um, maybe aren't getting the attention they deserve within the conservative movement. So, you know, we've looked at the issue of um, uh, the, the the transgenderism, and we've looked at uh, pornography, and we've, you know, looked at these issues and and how can we help families, how can we strengthen families and um, really handle the issues of the day. So, you know, we're we're an interesting group because, you know, we're a C3, uh, we have a C4 and we have a super PAC. So we involve ourselves in campaigns and elections. Um, We involve ourselves in policy. Um, And so, so given all of that, you know, we have an interesting perspective on these things and how to take policy and, you know, Think of it from the campaign perspective. Think about what voters are actually uh, actually care about and, and what the problems are facing them. And so it's a really we're a unique organization. Um, uh, and I, I'm really excited about the stuff we're working on. You know, back in the 90s, I guess we, we could say the libertarians and social conservatives had kind of an uneasy truce, uh, both of them against the, the statist side of of liberal, democratic, progressive policy. Are now libertarians and progressives? They're they know they're on opposite sides of the fence now. Yes or no? I think it's interesting because I, I I do think there's some you know basic things that we agree with libertarians on. Um, generally, you know, we try our best to avoid government regulation when it's you know inefficient and and bad for people. Um, so you know, there's some things where we I think have the 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 connection with the libertarians, but you know, what we've kind of found, it's more of an emphasis, like it's like, where is the emphasis in the party platform being focused? And, you know, I think one of the critiques that a lot of social conservatives, you know, have, have lot, you know, lodged against the, the status quo is that, 
you know, social conservatism tends to come last. We have the most recent example of uh, the um, Title VII decision with Neil Gorsuch going with the four liberal justices and Roberts as well, but Gorsuch wrote the opinion. And, you know, on the issue of uh, whether there's a right to, wh- whether gender identity is a protected class in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, a b- legislation that was written at a time when gender identity wasn't even a thing yet, you know, it seems like uh, I, social conservatives tend to get the short end of the stick, but when libertarians have their priorities, uh, they tend to get, you know, what they're what they're looking for. So I think, you know, there's some things we come together. Um, this tech issue is one specifically where um, a lot of libertarians and I, where we have a sharp disagreement, and uh, and I think that's going to kind of define the issue going forward. And that that gets us to the the main topic today. I saw an op-ed you wrote uh, on Sunday, I guess, in the New York Post. The op-ed is entitled, How to Force Social Media to Respect Free Speech or Pay Big. Uh, that What was the argument of that op-ed? So our, our argument is simple. There's a special benefit provided to, to big tech companies, and it's called Section 230. It was passed in 1996 as part of the Communications Decency Act, which was an anti-pornography bill. And... Um, What ended up happening was that the court overturned almost all of the anti-pornography statutes, but they left this little Section 230 statute in place. And what what the statute does is it grants immunity from civil liability to all big tech companies. Um, and it's conditionless. So, so basically, um, if you want to sue Facebook for, uh, content on their platform that might libel you or whatever, they are immune from that liability. They have, they face no issue. And so this really wasn't a big deal up until the big tech platform started to censor, uh, political points of view in the last few years. You know, I think most people thought section 230 was good and was helpful to the growth of the internet. And I, I, I would agree with that, but What's kind of happened is that, you know, we're seeing these platforms uh, removing conservative speech, removing uh, religious and cultural speech that they deem to be offensive. And uh, they're starting to act more like like what we would say a newspaper is doing. They're editorializing. They're choosing which content should appear on their platforms and which shouldn't. And so our argument is for these really market dominant, the largest uh, big tech companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter, if they want to pick and choose what speech should be allowed on their site, that's that's fine. Um, they are private companies; they can do that. But our argument is, you know, look. It, then why are we providing you this immunity? I mean, this is the federal government providing this special immunity. Um, you know that that's helped boost their market valuations to these nine-figure valuations. So. Um, so it is really a pragmatic thing. I mean, this is a, a benefit that's been in place. Um, it's helped the big tech companies and they need it. And so we have an interest in seeing the digital public square be a place where speech is allowed, where um, we're not seeing companies like Google trying to sway the election. And so we have this incentive that we can take away if, if, if they're going to continue to act the way they are. And so I think more conservatives are starting to um, to think about ways to to do this, because you know, if big tech, uh, I mean, this is this is kind of the reality of where we're at. But you know, Google, for example, controls ninety percent of search. Facebook is you know the go-to social media platform for millions of Americans. Twitter is where you know our new, our news is curated and where journalists go to kind of decide the narrative of the day. 
And if conservatives and Christians are blocked from these platforms, it's going to have a incredibly detrimental effect on society at large. Um, so, you know, we, we really think there's a state interest here in at least um, not subsidizing uh, these these companies if they're going to act in a way that is um, harmful towards uh, towards the country. Now, in the 1990s or the early years of social media in the early aughts, the thinking of the leaders was, hey, let, let it all hang out, right? I mean, this was, their, this was their vision, an entirely open platform, and we're going to get around big media, we're going to get around big government, and everyone is going to have a voice. What, what happened to that ethos? Donald Trump won in 2016. <laughs> I mean, really, I think that was a big part of it. You know, you have a lot of people now trying to rewrite history and kind of suggest that, um, you know, the purpose of this wasn't to create an open Internet. It was just to give these companies the ability to moderate content. Um, but no, that was the goal. I mean, everybody wanted to have, you know, a digital public square where people could communicate freely with each other, where we could you know, have this competition in the marketplace of ideas and beat down the bad ideas and prop up the good ideas. I mean, that's what we wanted to do. Twitter, as recently as 2013, was promoting themselves as a, uh, a digital town square was the was the word they were using. Um, you know, that all went away when President Trump won. And the reason for that is, you know, these are Silicon Valley companies that have um, thousands of left-wing activists that work there. And they came under tremendous pressure after Trump won. There was a viral video of uh, Google um, kind of having a sit down with their employees and basically apologizing to them, coddling them uh, as they were, you know, in tears over Trump's victory and promising to do better. And, you know, looking back at that, I remember us laughing at that at the time, but it should have been um, really a scary thing because now what's happened is that they're, they're, they're coming through for their for their activist employees and all the left wing activists that have pushed on them from the outside um, to to start removing content and the left you know um, you actually see some proposals in Congress to make um, from the left to make Section 230 conditional on the platforms removing all false content as if false is something that can just be deemed by a government agency <laughs> and so you know what's going to happen is. Um, you know, God forbid that happens. But, you know, if Joe Biden wins and you have Democrats have um, both houses of Congress and they pass this reform, you know, it could be a situation where Facebook is under an obligation to remove pro-life content because some commission determines that it's false. So you, you have a really I, I, I know the term's overused, but it's it's Orwellian. And we really should err on the side of free speech and free expression because um, once you start putting people in charge of determining what speech is acceptable and what isn't, uh, you, you walk down a really dangerous road. One wonders how, you, you mentioned leftists, thousands and thousands of leftists work for these companies. What, one wonders how the leftists came in and edged out the libertarians. The, the tech leaders, so I, I have the feeling that the leaders of Facebook and Twitter, Zuckerberg and, and, and the rest, they aren't terribly happy about being in the position of curating content. Are they being browbeaten into complying or are they genuinely 
joining in and sincerely want 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 to become censors? You know, I, it might be different for every company. Um, Facebook, for example, I think is for the most part operating in good faith, and Zuckerberg has you know, given several speeches about the importance of free expression and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's interesting because I think the tech companies are kind of a canary in the coal mine writ culture at large, right? So we had the college campuses where as recently as, you know, 10 years ago, we were starting to see the the shift from liberal Democrats to progressive authoritarian Democrats and where these college campuses were becoming, you know, pardon the word, but unsafe for conservatives and for Christians. Um, and, you know, tech companies were hiring these kids right out of college. So you have, you know, te- employees at tech companies are predominantly young. And I think what happened is it kind of shifted over to the tech culture, especially after 2016. And now, of course, we're seeing it in the culture at large. And there's a there's a real fear here of speaking out. Um, just a few years ago at Google, uh, you might remember the case of the engineer, uh, James Damore, who wrote a kind of a polemic um, talking about the issues with diversity quotas and um, trying to, you know, uh, make all hirings equal based on race and gender and all of that. And uh, he went into some some, you know, topics that were deemed too controversial. And what ended up happening was Google fired him. Um, because because their employees pushed back and were demanding that he be fired. So I think what's happening is just there's this fear of standing up to the mob. And what's happening is as the mob gains more scalps, um, that fear is only becoming more and more pronounced. And so now, you know, I'm, I'm sure some of your listeners may even be experiencing this in their own communities. But just, you know, people people are losing their jobs for opposing Black Lives Matter. You know, I mean, there it is. It is becoming a very scary thing, and standing up for the mob is is challenging, especially for someone who's trying to provide for their family, who you know might not necessarily be someone who wants to be engaged in politics. President Trump has called for an amendment to Section 230. What's what's prompted that? Well, President Trump, uh, this was actually kind of fun. Um, He Twitter decided to fact check him. And so he had a pretty innocent tweet about uh, the potential for voter fraud with mail-in ballots. And um, Twitter decided to fact check him. They put a little box inside his tweet. So they were actually editing his content itself um, saying, you know, get the facts. Uh, This isn't true. And then you'd click it and go to a page uh, where they were telling you all about why it was wrong from their partisan perspective. Um, And then they kind of accelerated things. Um, They actually ended up limiting uh, con- like you couldn't you couldn't go to the tweet unless you clicked a box um, saying that one of his tweets was glorifying violence when he was talking about the potential for having to um, send in the National Guard to some of these uh, cities where the riots were taking place. And so, you know, Twitter kind of like opened a can of worms here. Um, and I think the, the the White House was working on, you know, there's been lots of talk about tech censorship and should we do something on Section 230? But I think Twitter's involvement there, um, directly going after the president of the United States and, you know, trying to influence his um, reelection. I think they decided, uh, the White House decided, okay, well, we need to, to get this, this out. So um, the executive order is very interesting, uh, you know, it is a challenge being because uh, we're talking about legislation and a specific statute. And so in terms of what the executive branch can actually do, it's pretty limited. But basically um, what it said was that 
in the interpretation of the White House, uh, this immunity is conditional. Um, and they believe that it doesn't apply to companies that are acting like publishers uh, that that choose to, um, uh, you know, remove content they don't like and, and keep the content they do. Um, so this is a very creative interpretation. <laughs> um, I, I applaud them for, for doing their best here because uh, I but I, I do think you need a legislative rewrite. And the president said that when he signed his executive order, um, he basically called on Congress uh, to act. But he does have the authority, and this is what the, the order did, um, to restrict federal agencies from um, doing business with companies that are not promoting free speech. And that's basically the effect of the order is, um, you know, the, the different agencies are not going to be advertising with Twitter or Google if they're going to suppress um, conservative speech. Now, the American Principles Project, you say in your op-ed, has produced a blueprint for reforming Section 230. What are the main details of the blueprint? So we approach this from two different perspectives. Um, one, which we actually, um, uh, my boss, Terry Schilling, wrote about in First Things, um, I guess it would have been like last October or November, but one is the pornography aspect. So um, we are very interested in um, protecting children from pornographic content. And we believe one of the best ways to do that is to condition Section 230 immunity for sites that um, deliberately violate the law in trafficking um, uh, pornographic content to children. So there is a actual, there's an obscenity statute on the books um, that says that it's illegal to transfer that kind of material to a child under the age of, uh, I believe, 17. And so our law would basically say, look, if you're a website that is doing that and knowingly or actively, you know, facilitating um, that happening, you would also lose your your immunity. And so um, that's a key part of it. We didn't talk about that in the op-ed you read um, because you know you only have 750 words. But um, but we did that. That's that's one side of it. The other side is this free speech issue, which is becoming more and more important as the platforms decide to uh, to to act in an Orwellian way and 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 try to control uh, political speech and sway elections. So um, these are two. You know, they might seem like competing interests. Um, they're not. Uh, we, we believe you can do both. But, um, you know, when you're trying to protect speech, um, you, you have to be careful there to make sure you're talking about constitutionally protected speech, not necessarily, you know, obscene content. And so um, our legislative solution tackles both things and uh, does so in a constitutional way. But it basically just makes this special immunity that these tech companies need to be the largest corporations in the world. Um, it just makes them work a little bit for it. And you, you only mean the big guys. What's the cutoff point? So we use the term market dominant, which there's a, a, a lengthy history of what that means in case law. And um, ultimately, the legislation itself will have to be pretty specific in terms of what that means. But when we talk about market dominance, um, you're not just looking at like the market capitalization of a, con of a, of a company like um, Google, you know, possesses 90 percent of search. So when it comes to search, they're market dominant. TikTok, you know, has a market um, with young people uh, doing these videos and that sort of thing. So even though they might from a from a size perspective, be smaller. Um, they have it that niche, and they're able to be market dominant there. Twitter, same thing. Like when it comes to new news curation and um, uh, you know driving the narrative and that sort of thing. So we use that term to kind of uh, uh, give a little flexibility for what who we're going after. 
And, you know, obviously the courts will, will play a big role in deciding um, what, what that means as well. But, um, but we, we basically mean the largest ones. We don't mean the, the first things comment section. Um, you know, we, we, we are protect those, those types of um, interactive computer services that already receive the immunity would continue to. We're really focusing on the ones that are really dominating the digital public square and have the power to um, have outside influence from what they're doing internally, privately. Now, now, what will this require a new federal office? Uh, no, no, actually. So, so what we're doing with this, um, one of the reasons we wanted to do it this way is because we want to appeal to conservatives who uh, generally hate regulation and, and want to see these things handled in as small and limited government way as possible. So what we do to kind of enforce this is create a private right of action for um, those who have their speech uh, unjustly removed from these platforms. And basically, they would be able to um, get a lawyer and sue for a set amount of damages. And our belief is that by limiting that liability, but also like creating the opportunity for, for enough people to sue, you, you do create kind of an incentive for the big tech companies to, you know, revise their behavior. Um, the one, the one federal agency we do use, this was kind of a necessity, um, and we thought it was helpful. Um, we give the big tech companies the opportunity to, um, work with the federal trade commission to kind of certify, like, you know, we're acting in good faith, like we're, you know, attempting to, uh, to, to moderate in a way that allows free speech and free expression. And what we put in the law is that that could be, um, uh, you know, introduced into a civil uh, lawsuit, but it would not necessarily be determinative. So it's something that a judge could consider um, when ruling on a case. Now, would a democratically controlled House of Representatives, uh, what arguments could you make to the Democrats in the House to pass this kind of reform? So the tricky thing here is that, um, both parties are pretty hostile to Section 230 right now. I mean, you have the, the libertarian sect of the Republican Party is fighting to preserve it. You have kind of a left libertarian part of the Democratic Party, too, but they're shrinking in size. And so the, the I, I would say more populist sides of both parties are pushing for reform. So the problem and Joe Biden and Donald Trump have both said to get rid of Section 230. The problem here is that the motives are totally different. So for the Democrats, they want to get rid of it because they want to put something, they want to replace it with something that gives the government more power over what's allowed on these platforms. They want the control over speech. And the Republican proposals tend to be, we want speech to flourish and, and you know, allow everyone to, to, to be able to not have their speech censored. So two very different motivations, which you know, kind of makes it scary um, when, when we're talking about how we're going to, to rewrite this. So, um, you know, what we're trying to accomplish with this proposal and with our model legislation is to get the, you know, kind of right populist um, uh, view on this issue out there and to kind of start to build support on it. But in terms of actually amending Section 230, now I, do, I, I will say I think there's some bipartisan support for the porn side of it. And so I wouldn't be shocked if we could actually get that done in the next couple of years. But on the speech side of it, that's going to be really tricky um, because where we're at right now, I think both sides would fight tooth and nail um, where you might actually be able to just repeal it outright. But then to replace it would be 
uh, a real challenge. How would, apart from fighting its passage in court, a reform, how would Twitter and Google respond to the reform if it did pass? I I honestly believe that the companies, you know, it's kind of like what we talked about earlier. Like, what's the motivation here? Do the companies really want to censor conservative speech? Are they ideologically motivated or is it really a response to pressure from activists? And so maybe I'm naive, but I, I think it's largely a response to the pressure. So, you know, if you create a situation where the law kind of requires them to um, to act as a digital public square and um, allow speech and expression, you know, they go back to their employees and they say, sorry, like this is this is regulation. Like this is what we have to do. So um, I don't think they'd enjoy it because of the, the liability that they'll face. I mean, even if you know, even if they're truly acting in a, a, a way that respects free speech and free expression, like they'll still get have some legal liability from dealing with frivolous lawsuits and that sort of thing. So I don't think they're like thrilled about it either way. But I do think that you know, it's something they could live with. I mean, the the thing I've been telling people is that this is kind of where the internet was just a few years ago. I mean, we didn't see a lot of, uh, you know, blatant removal of political content before 2016. And it's changed dramatically since then. Um, and so that's why I think we need to put the pressure on these companies to, to shift back. And, you know, it is possible that um, if this becomes viable and, and they see it as a threat, they may self-regulate. And, and I think that would be an ideal result as well. Sometimes I wonder if this would give the leaders an out. They could say to the activists within the organizations, look, I can't fight the federal government. I don't want to spend millions and millions of dollars fighting the federal government on this and politicking over this. It, 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 it gives <laughs> they, they might they might secretly at least uh, be happy to see it happen. Um, so what if. I, I mean, if would Joe would President Joe Biden any sense that he would support something like this? Uh, no, I think he's more in line with the Democrats' proposal to rewrite Section 230 in a way to give government oversight over um, over over speech. I mean, I think they, what they want to do is essentially establish a Ministry of Truth. And, you know, have government regulators determine whether Facebook is properly removing false content or not. And false content would be, you know, an article from first things. Right. I mean, that's ultimately like where we would end up. So I, I think I, I, I think he might support, you know, the idea of getting rid of Section 230, but absolutely for the wrong reasons. And so um, we would have to fight against that. What about the the uh, so-called softer Republicans, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins? Where where would they stand on 230? Do you have any sense? Yeah. So so right now, I mean, the general default position of somebody of a Republican elected official who isn't, you know, terribly involved in this is to kind of go with the main what I would say, you know, kind of the Chamber of Commerce position, which is that Section 230 is a perfect law. It's better than the First Amendment, and <laughs> we should we should stick to it because uh, it's the status quo and it's what, um, you know, they're hearing from their donors. Um, so, you know, I, there is some work here. I mean, you, you've seen a, a growing skepticism to 230 within Congress, um, especially on the Senate side. I mean, you have, you know, Josh Hawley introduced a bill to amend it um, a little over a year ago. Um, you have Ted Cruz and uh, Marsha Blackburn and a lot of senators have kind of been voicing concern over the behavior of tech companies. And the president 
you know, the interesting thing, you know, people might criticize whether using an executive order or what have you, but he kind of forced this issue to be a thing. And now, you know, he's he's calling on Congress to act. So I've been in contact with a lot of these offices and um, they're all working on it. You know, they're all they're all paying attention to this issue and, and figuring out, you know, the best ways to handle it. Um, and so while I don't think we'll see legislation passed this year, um, I do think we're going to start to see a lot of proposals and a lot more discussion um, about this uh, this law and whether we should amend it or not. John Schwepp with the American Principles Project. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.